This is the Justice Visions podcast, hosted at the Human Rights Center of Ghent University, where we talk about cutting-edge research and practices regarding victim participation in transitional justice. Welcome to the Justice Visions podcast, your go-to for everything that is new and innovative in the domain of transitional justice. With us today is Professor Tine de Stroper. Hello, Tine. Hi. You are Professor of Human Rights and Transitional Justice. Could you tell me what transitional justice is? Right. Um, so in the most obvious sense, uh, TJ, as we call it, refers to everything that has to do with the initiatives that countries take after emerging from a period of authoritarianism or often protracted violent conflict. For example? Well, you could think of truth commissions, like the famous South African or Guatemalan ones, um, but also tribunals or processes that seek to hold perpetrators to account for the crimes that they've committed. Two other important elements of TJ are um, the reparations for suffered injustices and also guarantees of non-recurrence. Non-recurrence, so measures to prevent a country from relapsing into violence. Indeed. So these guarantees of non-recurrence, they refer, amongst other things, to institutional reforms. Institutional reforms which are meant to prevent conflict from happening again. For example, by vetting certain figures who were, um, for example, accused of torture under the previous regime from taking up central posts, say, in the new judicial system or in the police force. Right. What's really exciting, though, is that this is such a dynamic and rapidly growing field that the very brief overview of just these various mechanisms that make up the TJ toolkit is really not capturing all the evolutions and really the experimentation which is happening within and, and with these mechanisms. Could you give us an example of some of these innovative practices? Well, what I personally find really interesting is the move to explore what the TJ toolkit can and cannot do um, in cases, for example, of ongoing conflict. Mm -hmm. Is there... Um, something that we can use in that toolkit to help the quest for accountability also in cases like Syria or the DR Congo. So transitional justice in cases of ongoing conflict, um, that means in the absence of a transition. Yeah, but not only the absence of a transition in the sense of looking at ongoing conflict is mm -hmm. interesting to me, you can also think of cases where transitional justice policies or measures could be relevant to, for example, established democracies. Um, there was this interesting volume uh, just published now on how TJ policies could be relevant in the climate change debate, for example. Or there okay. is the question of looking at how TJ can help us to think more constructively about anti-terrorism policies in Europe. Or what I find really interesting personally is how we can learn from TJ regarding, for example, peace education or educational reform that can help us deal with polarization also here in Europe. All right. About your own interest, how did you get involved in this subject matter? Right. So um, one thing is that various topics that I had previously worked on, like public administration, social movement studies, conflict studies, they just came together nicely in the domain of TJ. Um, 
And the other thing is that there there are these moments of epiphany. Um, for example, for me, that was when I first met the former UN Special Rapporteur on True Justice, Reparation and Guarantees of Non-Recurrence, Pablo de Grave. At that time, I was the managing director of the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice at New York University. And, well, Pablo de Grave is just such a kind and inspiring person that you kind of automatically get drawn to the topic. So maybe he is single-handedly responsible for the boom of that field. And, and Tina, you are also project coordinator of the European Research Center project on victim participation hosted at the Human Rights Center of Ghent University. And these cases will be included in this podcast too, right? Yeah, yeah. So I wrote a research project just after leaving New York um, and I'm really excited about seeing it come together now. Um, it's wonderful to be, to be here in the studio also to see this podcast series coming about so soon after we just started off uh, the project uh, this September. Um, yeah, and it's really nice to be here with all of, uh, all of the colleagues. Hi team. <laughs> Hello everybody. <laughs> so this podcast will be on transitional justice, as we said, but more specifically on victim participation. Could you tell us more about your interest in victim participation and how did it start? Yeah, so this also, to me, it started um, raising questions in, in 2016, more or less, when I started reading and doing more research in the field of TJ myself. What really fascinated me back then was that there was so much attention for victim participation at the time, which made good sense at an intuitive level. Um, paying attention to victims, of course, checks all the boxes. Um, by all means, it seems the right thing to do. But the more I read about this, the more I found myself confronted with mostly normative arguments about why we needed more of this. And very little was available then about how we could do it or what the actual effects were on victims, on communities. And well, that was that was rather shocking to me. Shocking? Because practitioners didn't necessarily fully understand what they were doing. Well, in a way, I mean, so much resources were being invested into this whole idea of victim participation and so much was at stake, but there were hardly any empirical studies on what the actual impact was of what we were doing, especially with regards to how it could positively affect victims' experiences of justice and, and also on how it could contribute to TJ's goals of contributing to a lasting peace. Right. So we don't have much beyond that normative and aspirational rhetoric. Well, fortunately, actually, a lot has changed since then. Okay. Um, there have been excellent studies on issues such as re-traumatization, such as the effect of victim participation on procedures. And that is why you started this podcast. Yeah, exactly. We, we wanted to open that field up. What does it actually mean? Yeah, so just a few months ago, um, together with this team um, and with the support of the European Research Council, we started this, this five-year-long research project on victim participation in transitional justice. But we are obviously, unfortunately, not the only ones working on this topic. There is just so much cutting-edge research, but also innovative practices already out there. And that's great. We are coming out of an era where I think much of the work in the field of TJ was at least implicitly, pinned on this rather linear, progressive understanding of how societies evolve after the signing of peace treaties. 
towards more democracy, towards a consolidation of democratic institutions, towards more respect for human rights. A very linear narrative on progress. Right? Yeah, and and I think that the move towards more victim participation can actually also be understood in light of that linear progress narrative. Because the idea was that if victims have more of a voice in developing TJ policies, then lasting change is more likely to take place. I mean, TJ interventions increasingly came to be seen as stepping stones, I think with good reason, um, and victims were considered to have a role in participating in these, on the one hand, for reasons of acknowledgement and legitimacy, but also, and importantly, because they came to be seen as the future agents of change. But what we've seen since the notion of victim participation in TJ boomed is, of course, that this is optimistic, uh, this, this optimistic linear reading it's not quite reflective of reality on the ground, where the situation is often much murkier, much more complex, much more unruly. And that's exactly the complexity that we are interested in. The project only started a few months ago. Um, that is what the podcast is going to be about. You don't have any findings to tell us yet, right? <laughs> no, we we don't have any of our own findings yet. But that was not the goal of this podcast, neither. We didn't really want to wait for five years before starting to think about outreach. Um, and more importantly, we didn't just want to talk about ourselves and our own work. We really wanted to offer a platform to, to showcase innovative practices, groundbreaking research, and really to bridge those to research and practice. Because the first thing that our work is showing us, and also was at the basis of this research project itself, is that it's still very difficult to bridge that gap between research and practice. And also often between the global north and the global south. And we really want to work on that. That explains the focus then on the on one hand, the academic work and the practice regarding victim participation, on the other hand, um, in transitional justice. So what can a podcast do to bridge that gap between the academic and the practice? We really want to draw practitioners into the conversation. Right. Because researchers really need insights from the field and it's often not very easy to have access. And at the same time, practitioners often do not have the time to read dense and lengthy academic publications or they don't have easy access to policymakers. So, yeah, we want to connect these various stakeholders through this podcast, not just by shedding light on what is happening on various sides of the divide, but also um, by giving them a voice and setting our agenda, our agenda for this podcast, but also on a much more fundamental level, our research agenda, because that's really our whole philosophy of the project, to listen to stakeholders and to work with them as much as possible. So um, uh, just a small example, you'll see that it's possible to, to actually leave feedback via our podcast platform. Um, and there are also other ways to, to get in touch with us after the show if you think we should cover certain issues. And, and we'll try to take that into account. What is still left to research? What is it that we don't know already in this field? Well, yeah, it's it's true that um, some important questions have been answered already. Um, there's been a boom in research. But it's also the case that we've been 
shying away from certain questions because they are just notoriously difficult to mm-hmm. answer. Um, for example, most studies so far, they've focused on the effects for, for individual participants. Um, what are their experience? What are the risks of re-traumatization? Or they focused on the process. Can we guarantee due process if victims participate, for example, in criminal justice proceedings? But what we don't know a lot about, for example, is the long-term effects of this participation that often go unaccounted for, and especially long-term effects on communities that these participants belong to. So a shift from the individual to the community. Yeah, yeah. And this is a crucial question to ask, because if we are advocating for victim participation because we see victims as agents of change and as the ones who can set forth the dynamics of change embarked upon during the TJ period, which in the scenario we then believe TJ um, mechanisms to have an extra legal function of empowering people to become multiplicators of the justice process. Mm-hmm. If that's our assumption, then surely we want to know how that participation affects the prospects for further mobilization in, in which form soever how it shapes people's understandings of what their rights are, of what they can seek accountability for, of how they can hold people accountable. And uh, like you said, this is a hard nut to crack. There is a reason why these questions haven't been profusely addressed uh, on the basis of empirical work. So how will you then find more about this? Right. Um, What we want to study um, are some of these alleged gold standard cases regarding victim participation and transitional justice. Cases where victim participation was believed to have taken on a particularly innovative or far-reaching form or where it was remarkable for some other reason. Because our working hypothesis is that if the positive effects of victim participation are to be found anywhere, then surely it must be there in these cases where so much attention to it has been paid. So we'll focus on those cases in the first place. Maybe this is a good moment to talk in some more detail about the cases that will be studied. Um, If I understood it correctly, these are the cases that constitute the backbone of this project. Yeah. So we've got four cases that are the alleged or the so-called gold standard cases. And then we've been adding cases onto the project that along the way really struck us for how victim participation took shape there. So we'll also be looking at those. So hello, Sangeeta Yogendran. You are studying one of these alleged gold cases in Cambodia, and I'm calling you abroad. What case are you working on? Thank you. So yes, I'm working on the Cambodia case, which um, in no other case was victim participation so far-reaching, as some colleagues have called it. The Khmer Rouge Tribunal was really an experimenting laboratory with regards to victim participation in transitional justice. So you would expect this process to be highly oriented towards victims' needs, priorities and sensitivities. Yet, research by the Open Society Foundations has demonstrated that there's actually a big discrepancy between the agenda of the tribunal and victims' expectations. Mm -hmm. So in addition to potential risk of re-traumatization, we witness here that there's a mismatch in terms of what the desired outcome is, most strikingly so when it comes to people's desire for social and economic justice. 
um, versus the tribunal's focus on matters related exclusively to just criminal justice and civil and political rights violations. That sounds like a familiar story. Has it happened elsewhere? I am looking in particular at Safa Belchit, the researcher who will be working on Tunisia, another one of the core cases studied in this project because of the role of victims and victim participation played. But is it also a case of unmet expectations? Um, yes, uh, Tunisia is a clear case of unmet demands, amongst other things when it comes to um, social and economic rights. The self-immolation of a young street vendor, Mohamed Bazizi, which happened in Sidi Bouzid, a highly marginalized uh, region, is what sparked the Arab revolutions and what led to the uh, ousting of the regime. And it was in large part about social and economic injustices, as were the subsequent um, process that followed. So does that mean that economic and social rights have been on the top of the agenda in the Tunisian DJ process? Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, mm. Along the way, and due to various reasons, issues of economic and social rights, such as unemployment and regional development, gradually took a backseat to a discourse uh, centered around freedom and democratization. And mm -hmm. it's the same uh, when it comes to structural injustices uh, with regards to certain other issues that disproportionately affected uh, certain groups in society. Like, for example, the ban on wearing the hijab, which affected so many women and affected their life chances. So the topic of gender seems particularly relevant also in the case of Guatemala. Gretel Mejia, this is a case that you will be working on. Yes, uh, gender is quite relevant because in Guatemala, conflict-related sexual violence against Maya women was underreported in the Official Truth Commission. Mm -hmm. But years later, these crimes were brought into public debate through alliance building between women's networks and the courageous testimonies given by indigenous women. Mm -hmm. This paved the way for innovative approaches to truth-telling and justice and locally relevant forms of victim participation. We already just mentioned a lot of innovation happening in the field of TJ. Could you tell us a little bit more about what this looks like in Guatemala? Yeah, concerning sexual violence during the conflict, uh, first was the creation of a groundbreaking historical memory report called Tejidos or Weavings in English, which focused on women's stories of sexual violence during the war, which then led to the organization of a symbolic tribunal of conscience and afterwards to filing a criminal complaint before the Guatemalan judiciary. This actually resulted in the first national conviction on sexual and domestic slavery in the world. This sounds like a really major achievement. Yes, in a country where there's a rampant impunity, it was a big progress. But still, Guatemala faces serious obstacles coming from powerful actors who want to secure the same impunity for grave crimes. So it is important to understand this backlash against transitional justice in a country like Guatemala, that in some ways has been considered a poster child for transitional justice processes. So another case that features in the project, and that is not exactly a poster child of TJ, is uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Why is this case relevant to talk about victim participation in TJ when most people would question the relevance of calling this a TJ case at all? Christian Chirigiri, this will be some questions you will be looking at to answer. Yes, this is in a typical case as we are working in a complex environment that cannot be considered a post-conflict situation. On the one end, 
There are some innovative initiatives relating to institutional reforms where victims have been consulted. But on the other hand, we're interested in opening up a possibility to have a frank discussion about how malleable transitional justice discourses are and what happens when they're applied in these kind of atypical contexts. So when we apply the lens of TJ to a case like the DRC, we're looking at understanding what is the impact on transitional justice architecture, but also how does the choice to approach this as a case of TJ affect people on the ground. Does the question of the relevance of the TJ toolkit also apply to Syria? Another case that is studied here, Brigitte Hermans, this will be what you will be looking at? Yes, indeed. What is really interesting here is that local actors themselves are actually turning to and relying on transitional justice narratives themselves because they see some strength and opportunities in it. They found an opening in the narrative to offer at least partial redress also in the absence of a formal transition. But Syria was not part of the original set of cases to be looked at here. True. We have added Syria to the set of cases that will be studied because we see that victims are claiming these spaces for themselves and they're not waiting for invitations from formal DJ entrepreneurs. A lot of Syrian and transnational grassroots organizations and artists are actually playing a crucial role in advancing the centrality and empowerment of victims. They are making sure that these are not erased from the formal conflict narrative. Empowerment, uh, agency, grassroots mo mobilizations. These are also key in another case that was added onto the original set of case studies, Chile. Am I correct? Marit de Haan. Yes, and this is also clearly shown by recent protests in which large groups of Chileans demand social justice. This shows that when TJ processes refrain from addressing underlying economic and social issues, these issues do resurface. People do go out on the streets now to demand this, and this shows that TJ is an ongoing process without a clear endpoint. So a lot of this is about social justice, but it has also to do with a lack of sound policies regarding accountability and impunity regarding crimes committed under the dictatorship. Yes, well, it also has a lot to do with a lack of redress for the past. Mm. Criminal justice trials in Chile for human rights violations during the dictatorship started taking place only recently. There are still weekly protests of victims demanding justice and critical views regarding the work of the truth commissions. This all sounds really great, but how will you implement this project? Well, we actually have a specialist in the team whose role it is to bring together the pieces of the puzzle and who will study these questions more comprehensively than we've ever been able to do before. I think that brings us to the work of Elke Evracht. Elke, what will you be doing? Well, as Tina explained, the overarching goal of the ERC project is to shed light on potential pathways from participation to embedded change. Participatory approaches regularly surface in recent literature as alleged catalysts for societal transformation, but concrete theories of change remain mostly absent. How do you mean mostly absent? Well, when academics and practitioners use terms like empowerment or citizenship building, we are sort of left guessing as to how those frameworks really link participation and effects on individuals and in turn their communities. This is precisely what we want to do, to empirically engage with all of these hypothetical connections put forward in the TJ field. In your own work here, how will you do that in practice? Well, we're developing a comprehensive approach 
integrating qualitative interviewing and focus groups with text mining and experimental components. So on the one hand, we do aim to put forward causal claims. On the other hand, we shouldn't neglect investigating those complex and dynamic processes that underlie the pathways from causes to effects. So in that sense, it is really our hope that this work will fill some of the theoretical and methodological gaps in DTJ toolkit for practitioners when they are faced with designing, implementing or monitoring interventions. And that kind of closes the circle, or at least it bridges the gap between that research that we're doing and the practice, which we talked about before. So how do you want to go about this in the podcast? If I am a practitioner, why should I listen? Well, Just because of the ways in which we approach this, we will actually be able to bring you insights from the state-of-the-art research projects as they relate to your work. We want to really structure these conversations in a way that are directly relevant to practitioners. And to compliment Tina, it is also the case that most of us actually had a career as a practitioner before. Okay. We have a good sense of what is happening in the field and especially what information is missing and needed. We also want to tap into our social media channels and use podcast platforms and solicit our listeners to guide us in the right direction, for example, through concrete suggestions about issues we absolutely need to raise. Just to add on that, uh, what also makes this podcast unique is the frankness of the discussion. We try to avoid stale debates, uh, beating around the bush. Instead, we are traveling together, seeking new pathways of taking up transitional justice issues. We acknowledge that there is no blueprint at this point. What does that mean, no blueprint? The podcast will serve as a space of reflection on complex issues in an era where we don't have the time to attend events or read journals, and where these journals are not accessible to Southern-based practitioners. We really pursue an emancipatory approach, both in the project and in our media outreach. What will be on the menu in the next episodes? We've been talking a lot about what we are doing here at the Human Rights Center, but what we also want to explore is what other people who are experts in the field, what they consider to be some of the most pressing problems, and especially where they are looking for answers. And now we can wrap up for this first introductory episode of Justice Visions podcast. You heard the voices of Sangeeta Yogendran, Safa Belgith, Gretel Mejia Bonifazi, Christian Chirigiri, Brigitte Hermans, Elke Evraert and Marit De Haan. My name is Katharina Smets. And I am Tine de Stroper. The podcast is supported by the generous funding from the European Research Council. And for more information, please visit justicevisions.org. <laughs>